Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our series this morning entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And we've made our way as far as verse 19, and that is where we will pick it up this morning. So let us begin, of course, by reading our text together. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. For you cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin, Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little of faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles seek." For your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." When we read the Bible together here in 2021 in the United States of America, we often try to bring the Bible into our context of cultural understanding. When often to truly appreciate the interpretation, the true interpretation of the Bible, it is necessary for us to go back during their time and listen to these words and hear these words and understand these words as the original listeners would have heard and understood them. And this particular portion of text from verses 19 through 34 are truly one saying. Though many Bibles and the way that they have divided chapters and verses and so forth with parecopies 
uh, divide this one so many times that you lose the uh, train or the uh, train of thought through it from beginning to end. Jesus knew if he was going to call people into the kingdom of God, that one of the questions that they would wrestle with is then, how then do I Uh, maintain my responsibilities to the Lord and also maintain my responsibilities that I have here on this earth. This is the exact question that Paul stated when he talked about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He stated that one who becomes married then becomes concerned with the things of this world. He wasn't saying it to discourage marriage. He was saying it to simply inform the listener or the reader that marriage would bring about certain responsibilities that apart from marriage you would be free from. For example, taking care of a family, maintaining a home, etc. Jesus knew what was going to happen next. He knew that the Jewish people were going to be scattered throughout the known world after the collapse of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., He knew that being a follower of Jesus Christ would isolate them not only from their Jewish brethren, but also from the Gentile communities in which they would disperse onto. He knew that they would wrestle with the idea of fully serving God and still yet being concerned about the daily needs and requirements that they would have being here on this earth as a human being. But he also is trying to expel another misunderstanding. It is a misunderstanding that was prominated through the lives of the religious leaders. The lives of the religious leaders demonstrated, and they made and allowed for the people to interpret this way, for the religious leaders of the, at the time of Jesus were the, some of the wealthiest people in all of Israel. Now, that wealth not only secured them a certain degree of security, but it also allowed them a certain degree of sovereignty. But they used it as a demonstration to indicate to the people that God saw them as righteous. Because what had happened was that the covenant established through Moses, which at this time they are still under, God said to the nation, That if the nation was faithful, he would bless the nation. If the nation wasn't faithful, he would bring curses against it. By the time we get to the uh, era of Jesus, the period of time in which Jesus walked this earth, that theology had been not only applied to the nation, but also applied to the individual. So the individual within the nation that was wealthy could claim that he, or, uh, he was righteous before God and God was confirming his righteousness before the people by blessing him with the wealth in which he had. This is exactly the scenario that led to the discussion and also the discouragement of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus wanting to know what he must do to have eternal life. Jesus therefore, of course, shared with him what Jesus felt was necessary and the individual being unwilling to do it. The disciples then asked, if he can't be saved, then who can? See, they were convinced that by his material wealth, it indicated that God considered him righteous. And now Jesus is turning him away. 
it seemed, uh, it seemed wrong to them. But see, Jesus knew that it wasn't going to be the wealth of the individual that would indicate the standing of that person before God. It was going to be their faithfulness. So Jesus needed to calm their fears. Specifically, as you remember, the fears of the disciples who were in the immediate crowd in whom Jesus is speaking to. But also, he continues to establish what true righteousness is. Remember, he said in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. And so as Jesus now shows the hypocrisy that is displayed in the presentations of the religious leaders when it came to giving or prayer or fasting, he is now trying to establish within his hearers, especially those who are his immediate disciples, and allow them to know that it is not by their treasures that they have laid up for themselves here on this earth that will indicate their righteousness, but the faith in which they allow to guide themselves each and every day. And in the wake of that faith, the absence of worry. Having a confidence in the promises of God made towards them. So as we begin in verse 19, we are given those words by Jesus, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. This term lay up in the Greek is the same term that is used for the one who would have what is called a storehouse. Now we've seen these through the Gospels, storehouses. Remember uh, when uh, even in Egypt they had storehouses. And this is where food was stored for times of great need and so forth. And so this term not only shows a savings or a, a, a um, gathering, but it also indicates to the people a security. This is their, you know, fall net. This is what they can fall back upon. And Jesus said, now realize that this, uh, this object of security is very vulnerable. For your treasures on, uh, here on earth, can moths can eat them? Rust can remove them or thieves can steal them. And so the listener at that time would have heard these words and said, listen, these storehouses are vulnerable. These objects that give us security may not be as secure as we feel they are. You know, we often want to believe that a savings account or the right job or the right portfolio is going to give us a sense of security. But if the last 20-some years have demonstrated anything to us is that all of those are very, very fragile, aren't they? You know, now, everyone knows that when you go to your bank's website and you see that you have X amount of dollars in the bank, you know that there aren't actually that many dollars in your envelope in the bank to be provided for you at any given time, right? We all know that, right? 
It doesn't work that way. Our banking system doesn't work that way. When it comes to a stock market portfolio, we know that the higher it goes, the farther it can fall, don't we? Have we forgotten 2008? We see very clearly that even our health, some may find health, you know, their fallback, and they may sense that it is a source of security for them or having a good health insurance plan. Have you noticed that everybody's deductible now is everything and the insurance company pays $5 at the end of it all? (laughs) These aren't our sources of security as Christians. We need to know that. We need to know that. Jesus is trying to establish this in his time, in their hearing, by telling them not to lay up for themselves treasures here on this earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, and this is the real uh, crux of this point, there your heart will be also. As he is introducing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he needs to also introduce the new relationship that individuals will have through the person of Jesus Christ to God the Father. It is not going to be a kingdom that is solely based in one nation like the Jewish people were accustomed to under the law of Moses, centraled in the, the uh, nation of Israel. Now it's going to be all over the world. And Christianity, for decades, centuries, even millennia, did not hold places of prominence in the various nations in which they found themselves, they were always an isolated, persecuted minority group that was found within those nations. And so God needed to reestablish and help them understand and see and learn that the real treasures that are really going to be important to them are those things that they do on behalf of the kingdom of God. Those treasures that they store in heaven Those things are what really matter. It will allow the disciple of Jesus Christ to forgo the things of this world, to allow them to be willing to sacrifice the here and now, the temporal for the eternal. Knowing that by doing so, they may negate or they may miss one of the treasures here on this earth, or they may... um, forego that but in actuality by being obedient to the lord they have stored for themselves treasures in heaven where nothing can affect them it is those things that we will be rewarded with it is those things that will constitute the crown in which we will be given it is those things that as you make your way to revelation chapter 5 you'll discover it is those things that will be thrown and once again given unto god as an act of contrition and worship to him for all eternity so what jesus wants us to ask ourselves this morning is this have we placed our faith 
in something of this world to give us a sense of security in difficult and troublesome times. If we have, let us understand that those things may not be as sure or solid and secure as we would think they are. Because things can change, right? And that's the emphasis that he makes here. And then he says something very interesting in verses 22 and 23. For the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Again, this is a key couple of verses to, for the necessity of knowing the historical meaning and understanding of this. Now, you may ask, how do we find out the historical meaning and understanding? We have learned a lot about that culture in the last 30 to 40 years. God has been very gracious to the Jewish and Christian community by helping us through historical findings and archaeology to help us see and to understand these things through the light of that evidence to help us truly understand how they interpreted these things. If you're in the market for a good book this year, I would encourage you strongly to purchase what is called a Bible background commentary. One of the most uh, prominent ones is by Zondervan. It is a Bible background commentary on the whole entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Very good resource. There is another one by IVB Press, IVP Press, excuse me, InterVarsity Press, that alludes to a lot of this, and I refer to these commentaries often in my teaching because I believe it is necessary to understand these passages as the original uh, one who spoke or wrote these things intended them to be understood and how the recipient at that moment interpreted what was being said or written at that time. This was a saying from that culture. And it has to do with the understanding of what a bad eye or good eye actually means. And I'd like to read, if I may, for you. And this is from the Bible Background Commentary. Now, an evil eye in the ancient world is an eye that is uh, envious and covets what belongs to another. It is an greedy heart and mindset. Now, a good eye speaks of singleness of purpose, undivided loyalty. It will let into the body that which is sight is fixed upon. If the eye is good, it is fixed upon good treasures. And if the things and the things of God, then the heart will be filled with the light of God's revelation and treasure. So it has to do with divided envious attention or single-mindedness or single-purposed attention. Meaning, and this is consistent with New Testament thinking, Jesus is looking for all of us, not just part of us. He is not looking for individuals that are envy, envious over what others have and covet, therefore, what others have for a sense of security, for a sense of, uh, of um, you know, 
uh, wealth or righteous determination. He is looking for individuals that are sold out to him. That have laid everything down before him. Paul said it this way, have become living sacrifices unto him. Wholeheartedly devoted to him. That's the manner in which these verses would have been interpreted and understood in that culture. Either a bad eye, one that is envious and covetousness of what other people have, and therefore will strive in their life to obtain those things, or one who has a good eye that of single of purpose have devoted themselves wholeheartedly unto that which it is fixed upon. And therefore receiving the light of revelation that God has given and revealed unto this world through His Word. So that is what he is saying here in these. And I believe that he explains that or gives us the application of that in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money. Now notice how we've brought those three sections together and how much sense they make when they're read in their proper context. Jesus is saying that either you are going to serve me or you are going to serve mammon. Now, what does he mean by serve? Again, a word we need to understand if we're properly going to interpret it. It means for one to do what that is requiring of them. Meaning, to serve money, we have to do what money requires of us. If we are to serve God, then we need to do what God requires of us. That's what he's saying here. Now, of course, the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money. The Bible never condemns wealth. But let us understand that if we live for the purpose of gathering wealth alone, then we have become idolatrous in our Christian life. It is not wrong to be wealthy as long as we understand that that wealth is meant to be used for the glory of God. And that takes a very, very mature heart to do so. One scholar once wrote that the reason that money is the root of all, the love of money is the root of all evil is because money has a tendency to give people a false sense of security. It has a tendency to give people a false sense of sovereignty in their life, which in actuality it may provide in a limited form, but not in a total form. How many people who have won the lotto have ended up committing suicide? It is astonishing to discover that. And yet so many people are still yet convinced that if only I had X amount of dollars, all would be right in the world. Now, I think that is dissipating quickly, but there are still some who feel that way. And yet that seems to be the farthest thing from the truth. There have been wealthy people all throughout history that today lie in the grave and in an eternity separated from God. 
their existence has ended. There has been empires that have ruled the world, that have accumulated wealth that is unimaginable, that are no longer present on the face of the earth today. Wealth is fleeting. Wealth is here one day and gone the next. So for a Christian, we need to redefine what wealth means. And I believe by doing so, we can also then lean into what real true contentment is. Biblical contentment. You know, I believe that all of us would probably really like to have more money than we have currently. But yet, let us understand that the expectations that we place on that more money may not be genuine. And that money may not be able to do what we believe it can do. The children of Israel had a saying back then. I thought this was really interesting and I'd like to read it to you. It's found in a Jewish text from that same period of time. My children, love of money leads to idolatry. Because once they are led astray by money, they designate as gods those who are not gods. It makes anyone who has it go out of his mind. This is what it says in the Hebrew. On account of money, I've utterly lost my children. And the writer goes on to say, I believe it it was part of a diary entry, the prince of error blinded me. And then the commentator wrote, pointing to Satan's activity using material idolatry to lead astray the children of God. They came to that realization back then, and Jesus is now only confirming the realization in which many were coming to concerning the acquiring of wealth. As one wrote, he said, but the accumulation of wealth for its own sake was deceptive because one could find false, a false sense of security or an inaccurate assessments of one's spirituality simply in material treasures. And Jesus said, this is not so. You can't serve both. Look at how much of the corruption that we see in our culture, in our nation today, is due to the pursuit of money. It never ceases to astonish me what people will do to gain more and more money. I was reading an article of a young woman who began her life, her teenage life, as a prostitute and then ended up in um, X-rated films and then finally, through the grace of God, came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And in her testimony, she wrote, and I thought it was amazing, now that she looks back upon it all, she was amazed what she was willing to do for the dollar. How she was willing to allow herself to be degraded and humiliated in the way that she was. At the same time that she was gaining wealth and riches through these pursuits, she also believed that the attention that she received from men was authentic. And then she came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And she said, I was so wrong. I was so wrong in both. The interesting thing about this young lady is she now has a ministry in Las Vegas 
that reaches out to prostitutes in Las Vegas. And the way they approach their interaction with these prostitutes is that they give them a bag full of uh, soaps and shampoos, very high-end expensive ones, because this woman said when she was in that lifestyle, she always felt so dirty. And it didn't matter what she did, nothing seemed to wash it off. And after graciously giving these bags out, then they share, this can temporarily cleanse you, but Jesus can cleanse you forever. What, that's brilliant, isn't it? Just brilliant. The Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas now has a ministry on to prostitutes. And the, the ministry is uh, called Hookers for Jesus. I don't particularly care for that title, but I love their ministry and I love their heart. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible what God can do and what individuals will do to gain more. If the love of money is truly the cause and the root of all evil, and if that is truly the case here in the United States of America, would it not make sense that if God had to deal with the United States of America that he would pull the plug on the economy? Take away our God? That's what he did in Egypt. Each one of the ten plagues was focused upon one of the Egyptian gods that they had believed was going to save them from the judgment of God. Something interesting to consider. But then notice this next word, therefore. And as one of my teachers always used to say to me, whenever you see the word therefore in your English Bible, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? It's a concluding statement. Based on everything we have just read, now Jesus brings us into his conclusion. And he also addresses the problem of the heart that he is recognizing in those who are listening to him at that moment, and that is this. It is worry. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life for what you will eat, I'm sorry, and what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? This is him saying, isn't life more than material things? Isn't life more than the pursuit of these material things. Look, he says, at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the answer would be, of course they were. Now, whenever we read a passage like this, there's several contexts that we must take into consideration before we apply it before we can apply it and interpret it and apply it properly the first context is the verses that immediate immediately follow it and immediately precede it the second context is the context of the entire book that we find it in the book of matthew but there's a third context that all scripture must be weighed against and that is the context of the 66 books of the bible is jesus advocating that individuals shouldn't work Is that what he's saying here? That all we have to do is go out and open our mouths like a little bird and God is just going to drop the food into our mouths like a mother bird would do for her her little ones. Just drop a worm in there. Is that what he's advocating? 
No, he is trying to show the natural provision of the Father and saying that you can count on this also from your heavenly Father. Of course, later on we discover if you don't work, you don't what? Eat. Right, interesting. So he's not saying that we shouldn't work. But he's saying we should work with the right perspectives. We should work but yet honor God in all things that we do, including the work that we do. I think that's written in the New Testament too. Should we not work unto the Lord? But he's hoping that individuals will see that God will provide. And isn't this what Paul said? That my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. He was confident of that. And Jesus is confident of it here. Now, worry is something that we have an abundance of here in the United States of America. We had an abundance of worry before 2020. Worry was at epidemic proportions even before we even knew what COVID-19 was. For Cornell University in their journals in 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2017, discovered that In the United States of America, their data showed that 38% of the populace was in a consistent, constant state of worry. This is before everything. Worry is a plague to the human race. We have a tendency to worry. And as a result, we have a tendency to wear ourselves out, shorten our life, I believe, and certainly lose follicles one right after another. Before we started the youth group, I used to have a full head of hair. I've got very little to spare. Nobody rocked a mullet better than I did. You're just going to have to take my word on it. But during their time of worry, they will often ask questions like this that contribute to their worry. I know that I will keep predicting the worst, but I just can't help myself. Even when people tell me it's going to be okay, I can't stop worrying. I try to put these thoughts out of my mind, but they just keep coming back. I know it is not likely to happen, but sure enough, I'll be the one. (laughs) That's me and the Charlie Brown right there. Why can't I get control of my thoughts, they ask. Why am I driving myself crazy with these worries? Now, these are all things that were stated in the survey in which was conducted by the Cornell University. But many of these folks also tried to rationalize their worry with statements like these. Maybe my worry will help me find a solution to my problem. I don't want to overlook anything. If I keep thinking and worrying long enough, maybe I will figure it out. And I do not want to be surprised, but I want to be responsible and therefore I worry more. Wow, that is some of the most illogical reasoning that I've ever heard. But once you enter into the wilderness of worry, that's the way you begin to think. Jesus knew that this would be a place in which he didn't want his disciples to end up. And one concluded that after examining all of these statements, the statements of questions asked and also of justification, it is the issue of control that seems to be at the core of it all. They're all worried about that in which they can't control. So when we as Christians say the Lord is in control and on the throne, 
we are trying to eliminate those things that you may worry about that you can't control and help you to put your eyes back on the Lord and say, He is in control of them. When I read the Bible, I'm often amazed by how, from our perspective, the individuals that are recorded for us in Scripture, how often they never knew what God was doing, right? And we read it, and from our perspective, because we have the completed text in front of us, we get a little arrogant and say, oh gosh, they were so faithless in their time, weren't they? Couldn't they just see that God was doing something good? No, and neither can we at times, right? That would be us also. I love Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if you choose to say it incorrectly. Um, I love his, the opening verses of that book. He's complaining about the immorality and the injustice there in Israel and how far they have fallen into sin. And Habakkuk has concluded that God is inactive and he's not doing anything about it. And so he scolds God. He yells at God. God, how can you do this, God? How can you not say anything? Don't you see how crazy it's getting down here? You've got to do something, Lord. You know, this is ridiculous. You've allowed it to go too far. And I just hear it in the Hebrew text. Habakkuk, you want to know what I'm going to do? Yeah, I want to know what you're going to do. Do you really want to know what you can do? I want to know what you can do. You really want to know? I want the truth. Habakkuk, you can't handle the truth. Because I'm going to bring the Chaldeans down. And they're going to be the instrument of my judgment against my people for their idolatry and their evil and their wickedness. And I'm going to make it hurt like it's never hurt before to show them how wicked they have actually become before me. Paraphrasing, of course. And then Habakkuk, he takes a step back and he said, wait a minute, Lord. Now you've gone from completely inactive to completely overcompensating. You're going a little too far. Uh, I was just hoping for a revival, maybe. I was hoping for maybe just a couple more prophets to come alongside me so I didn't feel alone. The Chaldeans are worse than we are. You, you should be judging them, no, not, not us, you know. And then he pouts. The prophet who pouted. I'm going to go stand here and I'm going to go watch and I'm going to wait to see what you're going to do. Isn't it possible that from our perspective, we may not truly fully understand all that God is doing, if we can accept that, if we can trust Him based upon His faithful character revealed to us in His Word, if we can wait on Him patiently and not jump to conclusions, if we see what we see, let us know that God sees a whole lot more and knows exactly what is needed next for example we may pray for revival in the united states of america but we also pray with the mindset well i'm sure that god's prosperity uh his blessing upon our nation is going to lead to that revival it hasn't in history so as we pray for revival god begins to answer that prayer by turning up the flame to make it uncomfortable for people to help them see the futility of this world has God not answered our prayers? 
He has, but he has an answer in the way we have prayed, and that's what exactly happened to Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Worry is something that we all struggle with at times. But Jesus says here very clearly, he asks us not to worry. Then he asks us in verses 27, by which of you by worrying can add one cubit or one day to your life? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. Now, if God is so to clothe the grass of the field, which today is here and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, again, notice what he says. Do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear jesus appears to be indicating to us that in certain cases and in many cases worry can be chosen not to enter into i don't have to enter into the wilderness of worry in my personal life and i can avoid that wilderness by trusting in him and having faith in him For after all of these things, the Gentiles seek. But for you, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. Meaning, this is verse 32 is a beautiful verse. Those who do not have me as their God, those who do not have me as their heavenly Father, they seek after these things because they feel like they're on their own, he is stating. But your heavenly Father knows that you are in need of all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, these verses do not indicate that I cannot be responsible and practically prepare possibly for the future. But when it's all said and done, it is God in whom I must rely on for the provisions needed even in the days to come. That I shouldn't be so anxious and worried that I am expending all of this energy and effort trying to shore up some type of securities here on this world to help me and to help me to avoid worry and so forth. No, I need to turn to Him. I need to keep Him at the focus of all things. I need to make Him, as Paul stated, preeminent in my life. I need to make Him the first and foremost in my life. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. This will allow us to get our eyes off of the temporal and on to the eternal. In closing, I just want to say this. As, as one wrote, he said, Seek first the kingdom and everything else that falls into place. Every one of you is proof of this. For truly, God has provided. We, have, we have, may have spent nights worrying, and yet the Lord has been faithful even when we have been foolish. 
That's why Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow. Today has enough challenges of its own. Just deal with today. And above all, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and its righteousness. There are three words I want to leave you with. Number one is found in Matthew chapter 30, and it is the word faith. Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, excuse me. Faith. We need now more than ever to cultivate our faith in God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes of the word of, by the word of God. We need to cultivate a deep trust in our God if we are going to success, successfully navigate the uncharted waters before us. Number two is the word Father, found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32. This allows me to go to Him as my Heavenly Father, my Abba Father, knowing that He cares for me, knowing that He loves me, knowing that He demonstrated that love by sending His only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. My prayer life is truly encouraged by knowing that the one in whom I go to, I can call Father, Dad. This allows me, as the book of Hebrew, the writer of the book of Hebrews stated, let us run boldly into the throne room of grace to find help in our times of need. And thirdly, the word first. The word first comes directly from Matthew 6.33. We must Put God's will first in our lives that He may be glorified. We must put His will first. His desire for us first. So from faith to Father to first. I believe these three will help us prepare for those things that we don't know what to prepare for.